In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar, tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It looks like it was quite a vision that Isaiah had of the majesty and splendour of the living God, the Lord himself, high and exalted, and flying above him are the seraphim, heavenly angelic beings. Isaiah is completely overwhelmed by the experience. Angels, of course, feature prominently in the Christmas story. An angel appears to Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, and these apparitions contribute to what feels like the otherworldly feel of the Christmas story. There's a danger, perhaps because of that, that at Christmas time we can indulge in a form of escapism. Escapism is the tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. Many people want to engage with the Christmas story at that kind of level. The story can provide a sense of wonder and enchantment and escape from the harsh realities of the real world. This is a world, to be sure, where Mary and Joseph have some problems trying to find a place for their baby to be born, but everything turns out all right in the end. Except it doesn't, of course. Matthew spoils it all for us by recording that unsavoury episode where Herod orders the execution of all the baby boys in Bethlehem who were two years old or younger but he fails in his attempt to do away with Jesus because Mary and Joseph have already fled to Egypt. And suddenly, with that jarring episode, we find ourselves in the real world. 
where mothers are left inconsolable because their children have been killed, where violent dictators act with impunity to massacre their opponents, where vulnerable families are forced to flee their homes and become refugees in a foreign country in order to survive. Yes, this is the real world, all right. We recognise this in the news that we watch on our televisions. This is the world into which Jesus was born. This is the world which Jesus came to save. This is the world into which God sends us as his people to serve him and to be his witnesses. The Christian faith, the Christmas story, is not about escaping from this world into the glories of heaven. It is about the reality of God redeeming what would otherwise be a God-forsaken world. So looking at Isaiah's vision, there is, yes, this otherworldly dimension to the way he sees God's robe filling the temple, the flaming seraphim above his head, and the whole temple being filled with the smoke at the sound of their voices. Yet that vision of heaven is juxtaposed with the world. Because on the one hand, there is this vision of God in heaven, and on the other hand, there is the declaration, heaven and earth are full of his glory. So the angels declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The holiness of God is emphasised, the way in which God is totally other, completely separate, in a sense, from the world in which we live. Yet they go straight on to say as well, the whole earth is full of his glory. There is no radical separation between heaven and earth. They are brought together in Isaiah's vision. And we may scratch our heads as we hear the declaration that the whole earth is full of the glory of God. We may think, well... When I watch the news, I don't see much evidence of that. Where is the glory of God in this world in which we live? The glory of God is the wow factor. Whatever it is about God that blows your mind, that is his glory. And many people see the glory of God most clearly in nature. The heavens do declare the glory of God. We see things in nature and science that take our breath away, that make us stop and wonder. And in those things, God displays his glory as the creator of this fantastic world in which we live. Yes, the earth is full of his glory in that sense. We live in an amazing universe, one which displays the glory of God. And we as people, we have the capacity to display the glory of God when we fulfill our God-given potential. Or when we reflect the qualities of steadfast love and faithfulness in our relationships. God delights in us then. And we reflect something of our God-given character when we do that. And while humanists would dispute this, the kind of community spirit we're seeing in the North where people are being really selfless and helping each other out and, and being there for each other in the floods, that displays the glory of God as well in the goodness of humanity. And when in a place like this we worship God, we are consciously and deliberately giving him the glory to which he is due. And all around the world... There is not a single place where somebody somewhere is not saying glory to God in the highest for who he is and what he does. The whole earth is full of his glory in that sense too. So yes, God may be holy, totally other, but his fingerprints are all over the world he's made and the people who inhabit it. The earth is full of the glory of God. And yet God knows this world we live in is also a sinful and a broken place. Safe in the glories of heaven, the seraphim can sing about how the whole earth is full of God's glory. But when Isaiah sees the Lord of hosts, his reaction is one of dismay. 
He's a man of unclean lips. He lives among a people of unclean lips. His eyes have seen what is holy, and yet he is not holy himself. And he feels he's ruined because of that. The purity of the holiness of God, which he sees with his eyes, contrasts with the pollution in his heart, which is expressed in his speech. And it is this disparity which causes him so much dismay. Yet although Isaiah's reaction is to cry, I'm ruined because of this encounter with God, one of the angels takes a burning coal from the altar, touches his lips with it, assuring him that his guilt has been taken away, his sin atoned for. God himself is able to purify and cleanse us from our sin and make us worthy to stand in his presence. Atonement brings heaven and earth together. Atonement enables sinful people to be in the presence of the living God and for God to make his home among us and be with us in this world in which we live. And so Isaiah is allowed into the presence of God. He is able to stand there. Atonement is made for his sin. He is able to be there with God, but only so that he can be sent out from the throne room of God back into the world to serve God here. The next voice he hears is the voice of the Lord himself saying, Whom will I send? Who will go for us? To which Isaiah responds by saying, Here I am. Send me. He's seen the face of God. He's heard the voice of God. But he is sent by God into a world where people have blocked their ears against God's message and shut their eyes to his glory. It's their willful rejection of God that prevents them from turning to him and so being healed. But Isaiah's calling is to carry the divine reality of what he has seen and heard into a world where people are blind to who God is and deaf to what God wants to say to them. But that's where God sends him. And that's the task God gives him to do. And this passage brings to us challenges about worship. It's no good being so caught up in the glories of heaven that we forget about the world in which we live. Because if we have a vision of the glory of heaven, that should be part of what God gives us to equip us for living for him and declaring that and sharing that in the real world. Church. Church should not be a safe place to which we can come to push the harsh realities of everyday life out of our minds as we open our eyes to the glories of heaven and sing about how wonderful God is in his holiness. Yes, in church I do hope we get an overwhelming sense of the splendour and the majesty of God, but our calling is to carry that reality of God with us in our hearts, into our everyday lives again, and to live and work and witness for him there. The God of heaven calls us to serve him in the world, in the real world, in a world that is frequently godless and violent and unforgiving. People sometimes ask us quite scornfully, so where's your God then in the world today? And the unspoken answer to that from each of us should be, he's right here. Right here. Not remote and distant in some unsullied heaven, but right here in us and through us, wherever we go, whatever we do. So the question is then, how do you manifest the light of God in the dark places to which he sends you?
going to play a very brief clip from the film Fury, directed by David Ayer. It's about a crew of a Sherman tank in Germany towards the end of the Second World War. It makes for disturbing viewing. It is unstinting in its depiction of brutality and violence and the inhumanity of war. It's not a film for the faint-hearted. But the clip is from a scene towards the end of the film when the tank has been immobilised and the crew are faced with the overwhelming numbers of German troops coming up the road. Brad Pitt, who's the commander, gives his crew the option of slipping quietly away. But when he himself says he intends to stay, the others one by one agree to stay with him, even though it means they probably won't survive. One of the characters in the crew is a guy called Boyd Swan, nicknamed Bible by the others, because he's a Christian. And as the enormity of what they've agreed to do dawns on them all, he speaks up and says, what we're doing here is a righteous act. In an interview, the film director David Ayer said, in war films you'll often see a person of faith. But the way they're depicted often feels caricatured. It doesn't feel like a grounded faith or a living faith. It was important to me to show how someone can lean on Scripture and their relationship with Christ in an environment where they're seeing this much inhumanity and destruction. There's a strength and a power in that, and I wanted to depict it, so I wrote this character, Bible. It's interesting because the guys he works with don't share his same views, they don't have the faith he does, yet they respect it. And for him, there was that sense of being called, actually, to do something that could cost him his life. Recognising that, still saying, here am I, send me. Many Christians in the world face that decision to follow Christ. As part of their preparation for the film, the actors met and spoke to people who fought in tanks in the war. David Ayer again says, one of the tankers that came to meet with the actors was saved after the war, became a pastor. He made his life about ministry and spreading the good news because I think he saw and experienced so much and may well have done some things himself that didn't sit right in his heart. He came out of that war a transformed man and spread something good into the world after that. I'm a big believer that no matter who you are, there's redemption for you and there is forgiveness. And when people find that redemption, when people find that forgiveness, that too is a manifestation of the glory of God in the world. And our role is to show that that redemption, that forgiveness, are real possibilities in the real world. We've thought a lot about the real world in this service. It's a world where Herod callously orders the slaughter of all the baby boys in Bethlehem because the infant Jesus is a threat to his power. It's a world where people still suffer from leprosy where the after-effects of natural disasters and a blockade of the Nepal-Indian border frustrates and threatens to prevent attempts to bring healing to leprosy sufferers, but where people carry on despite the adversity and the difficulties that they face. It's a world where soldiers find that they have to abandon all sense of right and wrong and any sense of human decency in order to survive. It's a world where on Christmas Day and Boxing Day people have been forced to leave their homes and possessions behind because of the floods in the north of England. It's a world in which the Son of God agreed to come 
even though he knew it would result in his crucifixion. Here am I. Send me, he said. And it's a world into which God sends us to bring the reality of his presence and the possibility of his redemption and his forgiveness into every situation we encounter. We stand on the threshold of 2016 and God is asking, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? How are you going to answer him? Where and how far are you prepared to go for him? In the real world, God needs people who will say, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Lord, we read in Scripture about people who heard your call, were unable to deny your claim upon their lives, and who went into unknown, sometimes dangerous situations because you called them to do it. Lord, help us in this coming year to discern your call. To hear what you're asking us to do. To hear where it is that you want us to go. To understand what it means to stand up for you. To perceive what it means to bring the presence of Christ into godless situations. Lord, we offer our lives to you. Use us to bring forgiveness. Use us to bring hope. Use us to bring the knowledge of the possibility of redemption. Use us to bring the reality of your presence into people's lives. You say, who will I send? Who will go for us? By your grace, enable us to answer in our hearts. Here I am. Send me.